Welcome to the New York Now podcast, a modern wholesale market for retailers and specialty buyers seeking diversity and discovery. Gathering twice a year in America's design capital, New York City, it's where buyers and designers unearth a refreshed and dedicated collection of eclectic lifestyle products. Hi, I'm Dondra Glover, podcast host and senior producer for New York Now, and welcome to another episode of Journeys and Narratives in Global Handmade as we continue to celebrate Women's History Month. Today's conversation takes us inside of the Republic of Guatemala and the National Weavers Movement. And here at home, we discover Mayan hands. It is our pleasure to welcome Brenda Rosenbaum, anthropologist, writer, and co-founder of Mayan Hands. Brenda has worked with Mayan women in Chiapas, Mexico, and Guatemala for more than 40 years. She's conducted research in Mayan communities on Mayan culture, gender, and myth and rituals, Mayan weaving traditions, and the role of women in history. In 1993, she published a book with Our Heads Bowed, The Dynamics of Gender in Mayan Community, and has published several articles on the topic ever since. In 1990, Brenda and her husband, Freddie, founded Mayan Hands, a fair trade organization with the mission of finding markets for Mayan weavers. She's been working with Mayan Hands ever since and loving every minute of it. Join me in welcoming Brenda to our New York Now podcast. Hi, Brenda. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Dondre, for having me. It's a snow day here in New York, and I'm so happy to be talking with you and to all the people. And thanks to New York Now for providing this opportunity. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm excited uh, to be talking to you. I know that you have a lot of projects happening and you'll be traveling soon. And the fact that you found space and time uh, to talk with us, especially during Women's History Month. So I'm really excited to dive into today's conversation. It's been a while coming. So I'd love to kick things off with your career journey and what brought you into the world of Global Handmade. Okay, so um, I grew up in Guatemala, a country where half of the population is indigenous. And I can remember, you know, how excited I was as as a little girl when I went with my uh, mother to the market to see these women wearing incredibly colorful clothes. And uh, it was just for a little girl that was very... Um, exciting and unique. So I saw them in the markets and on the streets in Guatemala City, and the women to this day continue to wear their distinctive clothing. While men adopted Western clothes, uh, women are still wearing them and showing them, you know, showing their identity out there. So I was aware that they were poor and discriminated upon. Sometimes you saw people pushing them down onto the streets when they were walking on the sidewalks. They called them names. They treated as second-class citizens. Oh, my God. I was struck by their courage that even in the face of such oppression, they were not trying to hide their identity. They were proud to be different and be who they were. And so the love of their color and the, you know, their courage is what drove me into anthropology. I wanted to understand what was going on in my country and learn more about these courageous people. So that's what happened. Wow. I mean, what I, I, I have to say, my heart just sort of tugs uh, you being uh, just a young girl and, and having to sort of you look at uh, that kind of imagery and, you know, wonder in your mind, how can, why is this happening? And to be inspired to grow up 
to study, to understand it. I have to ask, uh, how has your career as an anthropologist uh, influenced your work and the way that you work with artists and communities and having that understanding? Well, you know, that was really important because anthropologists, I study anthropology, and you are supposed to do field work, which means going to the communities, living with the people, you know, staying in their homes with them, just learning what they do, how they live every day. And I spent a long time doing research with women. And finally, my uh, thesis dissertation in uh, Chiapas was with women in the highlands of, of Chiapas in the Chamula Maya. And uh, there I, I learned very closely uh, their struggles just to survive, Don Real. They're mm -hmm. very poor, often go to bed hungry. And since I was living there, I often went myself to bed hungry, which is the first time of my life that this happened. Mm -hmm. The men have to leave to find paid work outside of their community for months. The women work so hard planting their corn, taking care of their sheep, their children. They have to drag their water from miles away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a very, very hard life. And then, you know, every year they get these epidemics of like whooping cough or measles. Hundreds mm -hmm. of kids die, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, one of the things that impressed me mo most was when I asked them, when I was interviewing them uh, formally, so how many kids do you have? They would say, oh, do you want the living and also the dead or just the living? And I said, no, everyone. And so um, it showed that more than half of their children had died from childhood diseases, easy to cure, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the same time that you see this uh, very difficult life, you see how their art of weaving is so extraordinary, something that's traditional for them for really literally thousands of years. And so it's almost impossible not to think, oh my goodness, they, they make such beautiful things. How can we um, link them to a global market so that they can get an income and have um, a, a little bit of a, an easier life, you know? So I also wanted to find a way to give them back for their amazing hospitality and kindness for me when I was living with them. They treated me so kindly, you know, so I felt always like it's not enough to be writing about them and the way they live. Uh, it's got to do something about it. Yeah, you've got sort of inspiration. And, and tell me, Brenda, during those times of, of being able to live with Mayan families, uh, and you talked about the importance of just the heritage of textiles and the weaving, um, were there stories? Uh, is it a culture where uh, stories are uh, attached to the weaving uh, in the textiles? Or are there folk tales, or is it just sort of ingrained in the culture? Oh, wow. That is <laughs> <laughs> There's so many stories, Dundrill, and it's so important in their lives, you know, like they have their idea is that the, the moon, our grandmother, is the one that taught the first woman how to weave, the first mm -hmm. woman created in the Maya, you know, mythology. And then now the woman, the, I'm sorry, the moon appears to the girls who are learning to weave and she guides them through. And so as soon as they make their first weaving, they go to give their to the uh, feet of the Virgin. Um, our mother has been, you know, connected to Virgin Mary. So they go and they give their first weaving to um, 
the 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 woman who appeared in their dreams to help them. So wow. it's full of meaning, full of tradition, just full of all kinds of stories. Wow, fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, that really, uh, because I I think that one of the things that moves um, so beautifully uh, in textiles and weaving and just, you know, tradition, culture, and heritage is being able to pass uh, those uh, techniques down. Uh, And I think that, you know, the art of storytelling is just so powerful and you'll find that it just permeates through so many cultures. And so I I am not surprised uh, that we have it uh, here uh, as well uh, in the communities in Guatemala. Yeah. Um, I'd love to to stay in that vein and sort of talk about um, what has sort of come out of all its incredible work and this connection that you've had with the community. Um, I'd love to talk about Mayan Hands. Uh, You and your husband are co-founders, and I understand that you've partnered with more than 200 artists and women and 15 communities. Uh, in the Guatemalan highlands, along with the works that you're doing in Mexico. And you've you've also launched uh, Mayan Hands Education Fund. Uh, can we talk a little bit about the mission, the types of craft that are represented Absolutely. in regions, and as well as the social impact? And um, what a what an accomplishment. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, thank you, Donbrew. That's that's a really important question. So with Mayan Hands, we founded in 1990, and it works mostly in Guatemala. At the beginning, I did have some uh, products from Chiapas, but it was very, very difficult to bring them into this country. So now, since 1990, we've been working with uh, Guatemala, and we started small, of course, and then grew and found that we have um, some of the cooperatives that have worked with us for the 32 years we've been in existence, but in the along the journey, we have... Um, you know, gotten more partners, more cooperatives to work with. And uh, so we came to the mission, you know, the mission was really what um, we had started with of how to open markets for the exquisite handcrafted work of Mayan weavers so that they can count on a regular income. And regular is important. I tell you what, why? And with this income, transcend extreme poverty, send their children to school and have more control over their lives. The word regular is important part of the mission, Donville, because we want them to have work every month, not just one order a year or something like that, but something that they can count on regularly, because this is what gives them control over their lives. They know that month after month, they will be receiving this income. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, our artists and partners are just wonderful. They are always willing to try new things, create new things, you know, uh, anything that will work and help get their products to the global marketplace. Um, Of course, one of the most important parts of our mission is also to keep their important, very, very um, central to their life and identity, the backstrap loom, which Mm, is what the women weave on, that has uh-huh. been around for more than 3,000 years. Amazing. So we do textiles on the backstrap loom that are just gorgeous, runner, placements, handbags, purses, scarves. We, the women make incredible pine needle baskets. Each one is a work of art. Whimsical, charming, felted animals and decorations, and many, many more products that you can check on our website. Um, And the the educational aspect of it, you know, it's very interesting because most of the older weavers that we work with, Mm -hmm. they're illiterate. 
they don't know how to read or write because they never had the opportunity to go to school. Mm -hmm. And even now, girls are going more to school, but they stop uh, grade fifth, grade six of elementary school. And wow. you know, there's so much poverty in some areas that the daughters are married very early on mm. and they go on to have kids and then just reproduce the cycle of poverty. And yeah, education yeah. is a way to, you know, to, to have that, to stop that cycle. Mm -hmm. So all the daughters of our weavers, the, our artists and partners who want to go to school, they have a scholarship with us. And I'm happy to say that several of them are already at the university level and uh, they come from mothers who don't have to read or write, but mm -hmm. they are going to be university graduates. It's very, very exciting. That is, uh, my, yeah. that is excellent. I mean, it really, you, you know, you've said so much that has stood out uh, in that answer. Um, I'll try to kind of tap on a few things because it's really impactful. Uh, one of the things you're, you're talking about having regular work, and I think it, it affirms over and over again why sustainable development um, in marginalized artisan communities are so vital and so important um, in driving those conscious value principles. Because if we can do that sustainable work and fair trade and fair wage, I mean, it really gives a cycle. And then you also mentioned that the girls are often drop out of school by sixth grade. Now, is that sort is that sort of due to obviously with with the, the challenge and the social structure of with the education and 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 poverty and so forth? But is that also tied to are are most of the communities there are they farmers and are children, particularly girls, being dropped out of school to work on a farm or to do some other kind of manual labor? Yeah, yeah. So it's usually, um, you know, the concept is that boys need to go to school, but girls not because uh, their husband will support them. Well, that's exactly. a myth, as we know. So yeah. girls are needed uh, in the house, you know, to help their mothers. They have quite a few kids. They have to go to uh, work in, in the house, taking care of animals, cooking, you know, all of that. And the families are poor, so they can't sustain so the they, girls they, in school. Exactly. So that's we give them a, a monthly, um, you know, installment so that the family gets some income and the girls can go to school. And the girls can go to school. It's wonderful yeah. to know that with this education fund uh, through Mayan hands that, you know, that you are actually making some change in that girls were able to get educated. I didn't realize that the organization was so old, but you've really uh, been on the ground for a very long time. That gives you a, a tremendous insight and understanding. So thank you for thank sharing you. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One, one last thing that I want to say about education. Is sure, of course. Because the yeah. mothers didn't have a chance to go to school and mm -hmm. they're, you know, in this um, uh, mindset, cultural mindset at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, that only boys should go uh, when the girls, when they, when the mothers were little, the parents hid them under the bed so that they, when the teachers came, they wouldn't know that there was a girl there, you oh. know, because supposedly it's obligatory. But now 
the mothers are so thrilled that their girls are going to school because they understand just how important it is mm. in their future. So the mothers are helping us a lot too. Ah, that's it. That, that's amazing. I, I, um, it just the fact that now the girls can can show up and be shown, and it, it, it's got to mean a tremendous amount to the mothers for an opportunity that, that they didn't have. And I always say, if you if you're able to teach your children, they can in turn turn around and teach you. So uh, the cycle. Uh, continues. Um, I'd, I'd love to move forward to talk about um, what inspired uh, this conversation, in addition to the fact that you and I both are members of, of Weavers for Peace. Uh, it's good to sort of be in the sisterhood of that organization. Uh, but this uh, conversation uh, started with an article uh, that you had written, uh, and I I read the article on the site uh, of our group and it was for the National Weavers Movement in Guatemala. And it was incredibly eye-opening and I felt it was a crucially important article in my view. And, and with that, I am just so happy that we're able to bring another light, another lens uh, upon that conversation today. Um, Brenda, I would love to talk about what inspired the movement. I mean, you wrote this incredible article and did this research and uh, tell us about the movement, uh, the National Weavers Movement of Guatemala. What a great opportunity. Thank you for, you know, having the space to talk about that because this oh. is a very hopeful movement for mm -hmm. all of us who work with weavers because, you know, we've been trying to help the tradition continue by being able to connect them to global markets and all that, but it's a minimal effort. So what's 200 weavers when there are half a million weavers in Guatemala, you know? Mm -hmm. So now it's so optimistic to have this movement of Mayan weavers. And the way it started is very interesting because it started when designers that have been trying to take advantage of this amazing talent of Mayan women went to the communities and spoke to the women and they would say, oh, look, here's this design you make. Can you make it in a different color, please? And instead of just one, can you put three and small details like that? And the woman, of course, would weave it. She wants to make a little bit of, of income and she would sell the piece. And then the designer turned around and said, well, this is the piece that I designed. That's my design. And if you re reproduce it, you have to pay me. Oh. To, you know, so they appropriated mm. the design. And this was happening more and more because it looks like the world all, all of a sudden found out that there are these great you know, talented weavers and that they can buy their products for nothing, you know, or take advantage of their designs. So the weavers started saying, so what do we do? We're scared, you know, and they started talking among themselves. And this became a really the center of what the, um, you know, the analysis. There's, it was a small group in one community that started talking about it. And when they found out that this was going on everywhere, then they really brought in uh, anthropologists and journalists and everything. And how do we do deal with this? What are we going to do about this? And then they started analyzing the situation and realizing that this appropriation and this exploitation was taking um that was taking place at different levels. For example, Donville, uh, we all, and they too, started seeing that they were mountains of their very beautiful blouses that, you know, the women weave for themselves, they're called wipiles, mm -hmm. in the markets. And that you could go to the market and buy one for 
$5. When these huipiles, these blouses, take months to make, what's going on? They said, what's this happening? It was somewhat new in the 80s and 90s, you know? And it then increased more and more. And then we discovered that what was going on is that people were going to the communities and asking the women to sell their huipiles for nothing. For something that you work three or four months, they would pay $5 or $3, you know? And you then, wow. incredible, incredible. incredible. And then they would take it, they would buy it in the markets and make beautiful bags that they sold online for $400. You know, so the woman who made it has been paid maybe $5 if she's lucky 10 for work for three months or more. And then the the merchant is making, you know, all the money on of the, course. that problem. Yes. Yeah. So that gave origin. Let's see. That was at the center of the birth of this movement. And from there on, there started, these women got together. They started traveling to all the indigenous communities in the highlands, mm -hmm. talk with the weavers, what's going on here, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of all culminated in a, an effort that they now have to ask the country to enact laws of copyright so that people cannot um, appropriate these signs you know, uh, you know, steal these signs from the communities without giving the community any um, credit for being the originators of the design uh, or to uh, try to sell, to stop the selling of huipiles for those miserable prices, you oh, know? Yes, and the movement course. is very critical of all the businesses that are doing that, buying for $10 and selling for 400 mm -hmm. So they have put all of that in the public light. So now the government knows they're trying to enact laws. It's on social media, criticizing the, the businesses that are doing this. They are criticizing the Guatemalan government because the tourist agency has a program that's called um, the Maya world. So Guatemala is the heart of the Maya world and the picture of these women with the huipiles and everything. And then the women don't benefit at all. They're just oh, yeah. like... You know, a poster that where people get, oh my goodness, let's go to Guatemala to see, and they love the stuff, but the women don't get any benefits. I think it's no benefits. Yes, no benefits. So uh, that's the origin of the movement, and now they also have a book. So for all of us who are lovers, you know, of the of the the the, the products of the color of the talent mm -hmm. and of the backstrap loom, and you know. It's a, an exciting thing that now within their own Maya culture, this movement has come, you, ha, you know, has come into existence and it's protecting their heritage, you know, because yeah. this is a very ancient heritage. I am so uh, inspired and uh, as you have found that the weavers, uh, the communities of, of women uh, who people often uh, like to dismiss um, how they've galvanized uh, and to, to let uh, people know that, you know, we do understand when, when there's an injustice and it's against us. And I, I am still struggling with layers within the industry where um, this understanding uh, doesn't go deeper and to know the amount of work uh, that goes into weaving um, a beautiful uh, piece of textile, the clothing, a scarf, whatever you call it, yeah. Um, you know, you're weaving in culture, heritage. 
the time uh, that it takes. Uh, and part of the reason that we're so drawn uh, to these incredible indigenous cultures is because they're they're so old and they're 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 so knowledgeable and they're things that yeah. we can still bring uh, to the table today. So um, my heart breaks on the end that that artisans are still dealing with uh, uh, this kind of uh, abuse. Uh, and then on the other side, my heart jumps because you've got organizations that are activating uh, and really. Um, invoking change and getting the world, the word out along with, with some of the things that you've mentioned about, you know, and it it kind of lines up with my next two questions as we talk about, you know, fair trade and, um, you know, the cultural misrepresentations and further marginalizing weave communities, uh, weaving communities. Um, And then we talked about the the design rights as well, Um, them not being able to, um, to be threatened, to be sued. Just, I am, Wow, I mean, to a vulnerable weaver, I, I just can't. It's imagine. amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It kind of stunned me with that. I'd love to sort of um, even go a little further to ask some of the, within the the movement and and some of the issues that they've been able to address. Have there been other um, social injustices that are happening that they have been able to sort of bring up? Uh, as well. And when we talk about uh, the fair wage, and then you talked about the government um, sort of becoming involved. And is that involvement that of a support in penalizing, um, you know, companies and organizations that are not following protocol or that are taking abusive power? Well, that's a very good question. So the weavers really very carefully work with lawyers and presented this um, how you call them? This uh, uh, they're asking for a law to be, you know, this uh, designed to protect them from abuses. Those laws were not, did not happen, did not happen. Um, I mean, the the copyright law is very complicated, you know, because then the communities are the owners of the designs, and so who would get the money? But notwithstanding, I think there's not the appetite in the the lawmakers to do that. But the one thing that prospered was the criticism against Inguat, which is the tourist agency. And so that is still being fought in the courts that, you know, Inguat should not use the image of Mayan women Mm -hmm. uh, if there's going to be no benefit for them. So that, if I'm not wrong, is still being fought. The important thing about this is that The movement is out there internationally, in the papers, in Guatemala. Um, The leaders have been asked to give talks in this country and in Europe and everything. So the word is out there, don't really. And that's great. That's great. So, you know, they're fighting also racism because very several of the businesses that work with Mayan products made from huipiles and stuff, Call the the products in an offensive way for the for the Mayas, I you know, suppose. like a, there's a store called Siete Inditos, the Seven Little Indians, and stuff oh, like that. So oh, they've been God. criticizing this, and so mm-hmm. I think that for all of us who work uh, either in fair trade like we do or commercial, that we are all going to be more careful and ask for their advice. So if we want to do this, what would be the right way to do it? Businesses should do that. They should be more sensitive, you know, more respectful. So I'm hoping that all this work 
of the movement will bring along that kind of response and also a fight fight against machismo, you know, gender equality. Which is coming, absolutely. I mean, that that it's called corporate responsibility and having um, social values. One of the things that is happening uh, here in this country, as you know, because you you live here, uh, is that... um, Consumers have responded in a huge way, and I'm so proud of the fact that the demand is you have to be in line with my value principles. You have to support things that I feel affect me and my community, and you're, we're finding as much as 70% of, of consumers in the U.S. are willing to support um, brands that have a value system. Um, that are corporately responsible, um, that are aligned with values in community. And I think that that consumer demand uh, is the driving force um, for change uh, that you're seeing all around the country and and throughout various places in the world. And so I am very hopeful um, for Guatemala that some of those things will translate uh, so that we do find more equity and people feeling more responsible for their messaging uh, and how uh, folks are treated, particularly when they are the suppliers of of goods that uh, have legacy and no matter who you are you should be respected um but it is it it is challenging uh to hear uh when you have very well been the root and the foundation of civilizations that um descendants would have to still uh deal with this sort of um discriminatory uh discriminatory practices and and just sort of being dehumanized and but then you see a light of rising and so that is always inspiring i'd love to i think we have an opportunity uh, brenda uh, in this conversation to also um, sort of uh, do a mindful education and and an understanding uh, to impart upon, um, you know, designers and brands, retailers, um, industry people who are working, uh, so many that are working in global handmade and do it with passion and do it with great integrity. Uh, but let's talk about that fair trade, uh, fair wages, and sort of those cultural misrepresentations again. That because they marginalize communities, how how would how do we turn this behavior around? You know, and how do we move more towards equality uh, in working with weavers? What are some of the things that we should think about before we take on a project? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. From the perspective of the Mayan movement, I think that. You know, the the way that they're dealing with these things and putting them out there for all of us, we can't no longer say, we can no longer say, oh, I didn't know. Oh, I thought that it was like this. Oh, you know, now we know what's going on. So as you were saying, it's up to us. It's our responsibility to find out what's the, the way to do it. Before the movement and before this level of awareness, Uh, People did whatever they want. And I have to say, I'm sad to say that some people have jumped into the fair trade bandwagon and they said they're fair trade and they're not. So that's a kind of problematic, you know, because Mm -hmm. you're buying things as a customer. uh, You want something handmade and socially responsible and you're buying it because this business is saying that they're they're fair trade. They're paying fair wages and respecting the, the producers. And they're not. And so that complicates matters. But it's up to us, to to us and the customers, to find out exactly what's going on. And you know what's exciting, Dondrila, about the movement also, Mm -hmm. is that two two generations ago, um, in the 80s, let's say, uh, 
the Mayan women who went to college, and there were some, you know, they uh, changed their clothes to wear clothes like us, Western clothes, because they know they're going to be discriminated, mm-hmm. you know, if they're wearing their traje. But nowadays, all the Maya women professionals, doctors, poets, musicians, you name it, you know, they're all wearing their traje. So that's another is like the movement is growing, not only about the weaving, but about all professional women, Maya women and all women in general, Maya women in general. And therefore, that is fantastic because then that's going to be dealing with gender discrimination, which is so, so strong in Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. You know, it really, I mean, it leads me well into my next question, but I think just what you've just mentioned, you know, we began to normalize. um, And I think that's a part of the goal just to start, put it on and wear it um, and, and not apologize uh, for, for wearing uh, clothes that are attached to a cultural legacy, uh, particularly when it's selling so much in an, an artisan end, but just regular people walking around. And I think that's really empowering and that women are standing up in that way. Um, as I mentioned, it leads me into uh, my next co- my, my next point with you is that, you know, we've talked about uh, in current conversations and previous conversations as well, we've talked about the oppression of indigenous women, particularly in machizo cultures. And yet Guatemalan women have emerged courageously uh, defiant and determined to hold on to their legacy, uh, rightfully and heritage, that's really brave and and it's deeply inspiring. And and with that, I'd love to dive into, you know, the textiles, women weaving and the caring of identity uh, on on their skins. Oh yeah, that's very important because we really haven't spoken a lot about the backstrap loom and weaving as the very heart of Mayan culture. You see, when the Spaniards, when the Spanish invaders arrived, Mm -hmm. um, what happened was that the men, the indigenous men, were compelled to ask, uh, I'm sorry, to act as intermediaries Mm -hmm. between the Spanish authorities and the indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. And so they learned Spanish and they, you know, acculturated, assimilated a lot more to the general culture than women. Women stayed in their communities, speaking their languages, uh, raising their kids with their language, weaving the family's clothing, identifying as Maya, transmitting the backstrap loom technology that's 3,500 years old, as I mentioned before. Yes. And just, you know, being the, the root, really the root of Mayan identity, women. It's amazing, their their role, you know? And Mm -hmm. so there's this, and and as I told you, when I was a kid, what I thought was, wow, why do these women continue wearing their clothes if they know that by wearing it, they're going to be discriminated, pushed off the street, called names, everything. Oh my God. So it is, as you said, it's very courageous. But that's, it's the women who have kept the identity. And this very famous um, Mayan artist, Paula Nicho, she has a wonderful picture you can find in her online that's called The Weepil is My Second Skin, where she draws her blouse, her, you know, woven with the symbols and everything, right on her skin. It's not a cloth that she's wearing, it's on her skin. And that gives us the image very literally 
of how the identity so strong is in the weaving of their clothes. You know, wow. so it's it's incredible. It's it, unbelievable. It, 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 it just it really, really is. And and I do remember um, in one of our conversations we spoke about that the connection uh, to uh, the identity uh, in the the loom and the the woven fabrics and textiles are so important that they even carry on in um, the afterlife in terms of uh, during the burial ceremonies. You mentioned a little. I'd love to just uh, yes. talk on that a bit because that yes. was that was such a um, insightful um, moment for me. Like wow, what a connection! Yes, the women want to wear their finest. We feel the finest blouse they wove. When they're buried, they were they're buried in their wipil, wearing their wipil. So you imagine just how powerful that is. That from the time they're babies until they die, this is who they are, and right. they're not. Even though they suffer because of it, uh, because they're mm-hmm. discriminated, they it's important. It makes them proud. They're, you know, they that's what they want to be. They want to be who they are. That's amazing. It, well, you know, if you if you look at it, it, it just it kind of reminds me a bit of um, the ancient Egyptians, uh, that sort of you know being really t- connected to the culture, even in uh, in afterlife spaces and when you transition. So that's really yes. really powerful uh, in a very very uh, spiritual way. You know, I know that we we talked a little earlier about the new generation. And I'd love to, to move forward to talk about that. Um, you know, the new generation, the intelligentsia, uh, their impact in reclaiming uh, Mayan weaving heritage and culture and returning to their ancestral homes. Uh, what impact has that had on the National Weavers Movement agenda? I know that many of them are a part of the movement and I, I'd love to know uh, what's happening in the communities now and how are they changing and impacting within the organization? Well, I think it's nothing short of, of a revolution, you know, because what this Mayan women intelligentsia that uh, for, forms the core of the Mayan movement, they travel around many, many indigenous communities, talking with the weavers, gathering them together, forming councils, weaving councils in every small community so that people can talk about their problems, they can talk about how what the weaving means to them, how um, the outside world should be more respectful. So there is, it's a movement, it's a growing awareness in the women themselves, the weavers in their small communities about the importance of their weaving. Because, you know, after a while, when you're put down and put down and put down by the larger culture, you can start thinking, oh, what I'm doing is not, you know, it's not worth it. Everybody thinks it's, and they pay me five, $5 for work of six months. So this is a kind of a reassurance, a strengthening, a also in numbers, because now these councils get together, all of them, sometimes during the year, and they have, I've seen them on Facebook. It's wonderful to see them on Facebook there. Um, organizing sales of their weavings in different townships in the country, different communities. So it's become a really like a um, a connection between all the weavers and the intelligentsia that's working with them, which is really, really powerful. 
you know, no, it really is. It, it really, yeah. I, I, I love the, the turnaround. Um, we spoke a bit earlier about how, how you repeat a cycle and the fact that the cycle has now come to that younger generation being educated uh, and going to university and coming back uh, and infusing a, a whole new sense of pride and reclaiming. And now they're really showing how much they understand, uh, much like that little girl that you were watching through the eyes. And uh, yes. it, it's really, really beautiful to see um, it turn around. And for me, I'm sure like with many other people, it just sort of confirms that there is always hope and and moving forward. And so that um, that leaves me in a, a really warm place. I'd love to make sure that we mention, I uh, know that there's uh, a very important book um, that has been written and it uh, holds a lot of information for Mayan culture uh, and things that were able to be preserved and shared. And I'm sure there'll be many people who are interested. And if you could uh, mention the title uh, of the book so that for listeners who are interested that they can go and, and um, find some information in there. I mean, it's holds so much to Mayan culture and I'm sure things about the motifs and designs and history. So it'd be great to kind of share uh, what that book is, because I know that we'll be le- we'll be ending it with a wonderful quote, and I'm excited to to be able to share that with our audience. Yeah. So the, uh, just one more thing I wanted to say about education. Absolutely. That, that the in the councils in the communities now there is an awareness that the younger people who are in school they also want to learn to weave, even if it's not going to be their uh, profession, let's say they're not going to be weavers. Maybe they're going to be doctors, but they will have learned how to weave also the, the women. And even some boys are learning, you know, so they have established all these schools of weaving all throughout the community, backstrap weaving, which is wonderful. Now, the book is called in Spanish, Nuestros Tejidos Son Los Libros Que La Colonia No Pudo Quemar. Our weavings are the books that Spanish colonizers could not burn. They burned the books that the the Maya had, several books, and they were burned because of they wanted to get rid of all pagan influences. It was Mm -hmm. the mind of the Inquisition. But in the textiles, the women were encoding the whole cosmology, you know, important values and everything. And it was... The Spanish saw that and didn't know that all that treasure was right there in the textile and it was being transmitted to the next generation. So that's what the title of the book means, that the Spanish could not burn the textiles because they didn't know just how important they were to uh, bring the culture to the next generation. And we're (laughs) translating it in English. It's, um, I don't know if I already said it in English, but if I haven't, the title would be our weavings are the books that Spanish colonizers could not burn. And we are, at my hands, we are um, um, translating it into English, so it will be available. Right now, we have a few copies. You can look for them on our website. Excellent. Excellent. I will definitely be grabbing uh, one of those copies. And and thank you so much for, for sharing that information. Uh, it, once again, it's affirming how important literature is and to hold on to the stories, to translate them, to share them so that we can all come into a greater understanding, a uh, discovery. And I am so grateful for, for that book being around because it really holds a lot of information to the culture. So, and it also goes back to how important textiles are. So thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Brenda, 
I mean, I, I, what can I say? I mean, you know, it's been an incredibly informative and revealing conversation and, and truly a conversation that needs to continue um, social justice uh, for just social justice in, in Guatemala, for weavers, and of course, weavers around the world. Um, although we've made uh, tremendous strides uh, here in the West in gender equality, um, we indeed need to continue to raise awareness in places where insurmountable challenges are still at play. Um, but it's also wonderful to hear of brave warriors standing up and moving the agenda forward and reclaiming. Uh, so that uh, in itself uh, means so much. It helps to propel us forward I'd love to make sure that listeners are able to stay in touch with you and learn more about Mayan Hands and the work that you're doing in Guatemala and the collections. And of course, uh, keeping an eye on the National Weavers Movement uh, in Guatemala. Uh, can you share your social media contacts and information uh, with us? That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, please come to our website and you can see blogs and all and all of our products and what we do, etc. And it's www.mayanhands.org. And you can find Mayan Hands on Facebook and on Instagram too. Mayan Hands, M-A-Y-A-N-H-A-N-D-S dot org. So I hope to, to see many of you coming to visit us on our <laughs> website. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Brenda. And then for our listeners, I will definitely um, give a recap of uh, Brenda's contact information for website and Facebook and Instagram so that you are able to reach out and get in touch and also to follow socially those followers. It really means a lot. Uh, we're able to get the message out and of course, learn so much more about Mayan hands uh, in the organizations that we were talking about today. Brenda, um, what can I say? Thank you so much for making time uh, with for us today. It meant a lot to talk to you in this um, series of journeys and narratives in Global Handmade. And we have truly uh, been on a journey in our conversation uh, with you today. So I thank you. And thank you so much, Don, for first of all, for finding us and for um, allowing us this wonderful opportunity. And thank you also to New York Now. I'm very appreciative to we just need to spread the word about the women, their culture, the movement, and all of that. And I thank you very much for the opportunity. To connect with Brenda and learn more about Mayan Hands, visit MayanHands.com and follow on Instagram at Mayan Hands. Maya weaving is more than just symbols and colors. They are the language of our relationship with the cosmos and our deep love for life. They are evidence that we, Maya people are still alive. The National Weavers Movement of the Republic of Guatemala. Thank you for joining us in Journeys and Narratives in Global Handmade. Thank you for listening to the New York Now podcast. Make sure to tune in weekly for engaging and insightful conversations, touching on the most relevant topics facing our community today. Visit NewYorkNow.com to learn more about our market and how you can join in on the conversation.